Hello, people of Earth, other planets, other organisms. This is Stephen Casimiro from Adventure Journal with Justin Hausman, our senior editor. Welcome to the AJ podcast. Justin, what up? Good morning. Just enjoying a, a little bit of sun after some like two rainy days in a row, which is awesome for October. Love to see that. Love to see that. Excellent. It rained down here last night. So, um, What's your soil like? Can you get out? Does it drain well? Can you get out when it's raining and not really trash the trails? Because you can't do that. We have so much clay here. You just yeah, got to stay off it for days. It's pretty clayy. It's actually a huge bummer because we get a lot of people that don't observe that rule and will ride anyway. We only have like one really good mountain bike loop here that's like built for mountain bikes. They'll chain that off. But like every time it rains, especially if it's been raining for like four days, you'll see guys riding around just in town running around and they're muddy. And I just, I'm like, Ugh, like, where have you been riding? You know, like surely you're messing something up. It also makes it, makes us look bad. You know, I'm in a constant battle with, with anti-mountain bike people around here. And, uh, it doesn't help when they actually, when people are out running up the trails. So unfortunately you kind of put it away, but the gravel, you know, fire roads are fine. So that's just becomes more gravel time. For those of you who don't know, and I'm guessing that's everybody, Justin lives in Marin. Yes. The irony of Marin is that it is the home of the Mountain Biking Hall of Fame and also one of the most restrictive places to actually ride your mountain bike. Yeah. I I, I, uh, I don't know if anybody really knows for sure why that is. I sort of assume that it's because, uh, you know, People started mountain biking here in the 70s and nobody really knew what to make of it and so they just made it illegal on the trails and, and everywhere else has kind of figured out that's eh, probably fine to share some trails and to get mountain bikes on it but around here it's just sort of stuck i think so. it's also part of the strength of the the hiking coalition and the equestrian yeah. coalition so last night um i was thinking about which would you rathers and I am so bad at which would you rather especially like in a group situation, you know, where like, oh, 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 we gotta do which would you rather. Like I just totally choke. So I was thinking about it and I was thinking a little bit about spooky season, which we are entering. And so I have one for you. Don't judge me if you think it's lame. Which would you rather to have expanded vision so that you could see other light waves like uh ultraviolet or to have echolocation like a bat. So what do you, I mean, I know that birds and like insects and maybe fish can see in other light, like light waves that we can't see. I, I, I desperately want to see what they get to see. I feel like we're missing out on the full picture, but uh, you know, for all we know, there's gorgeous like scenes all the time. If you can see an ultraviolet light that they can see that we can't see, that would be pretty cool. But I, but unless you're, uh, I mean, it's just, isn't, it's not gonna really help you. It's just, it's just pretty to look at, but I, you never, I mean, think about how easy it would be to avoid cars while you're walking around, while you're riding a bike. If you could echolocate, you could, I, I just feel like that'd be more helpful. You'd hear, you'd hear, you'd hear, you'd, you'd hear people coming from long ways away. You could watch your kids without having to think about it. Uh, everything at night is more accessible. On the other hand. Awesome. If you have the sense, the the sensibility, sensibility. If you can sense like a bat, wouldn't it drive you nuts knowing where all those bugs are? Well, I was just gonna say you could also eat bugs all the time so easily. I mean, yeah. your, your bug eating would, boy, that would just skyrocket. But could you? Because our reaction times is not the same as bats. Ah, good point. I mean, good it's, point. you could get a lot of protein, but so could could we? Do you, would you be able to communicate through echolocation? Ooh, yeah. Why not? 
I don't. They, Let's that'd say be, that you can. Be epic. Because that kind of like sonar counts, right? So I could be out surfing and like yes. dip, dip my head into the water and just be and just. Oh my god! Imagine how that would be amazing. Putting your head into the water in the ocean and just instantly getting a map of where all the animals are would be pretty cool. That'd be pretty rad. Yeah, I choose so, that. I choose. Okay, that. you choose that. I think I yeah. do too. Yeah. So spooky season. I am ready. I am wearing my pumpkin spice deodorant. And... <laughs> are you Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> That mean that you just splashed a latte on your arm on your armpits? That's a that's that's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of mysteries in the outdoor space. There are um, gosh, so many incidents of people disappearing and not being found, and the one that has fascinated me more than any other is the story of Dyatlov Pass in the Soviet Union in Russia, Siberia in 1959 are you familiar with this yeah, yes but no i'm not i'm not a, i'm not um i'm not deep in the dyatlov paths reddit forums uh so we wrote about it somebody wrote about it on aj i've but it wasn't me so i've read that article but that's that's pretty much it what are we it talking steve the, yeah it was steve hawk did it and oh, um hawk. hawk did it and i uh I had done a lot of research at that point and I handed off all my research to him and he did a really nice job with it. It is an enduring mystery. Um, it is something that's always fun to contemplate, especially as Halloween approaches. Um, so the, the short version, um, I'll give you a quick overview. Um, so it's 1959. It is, uh, as I mentioned, Soviet Union and a group of uh, not, well, it started out as 10. Um, but a group of nine ski tourers went into the Ural Mountains in uh, Siberia, part of Siberia, and um, never returned. And they, they all died, and they died under mysterious circumstances that uh, have fueled endless conspiracy theories, leaning on mistrust of the Soviet government and authorities. And it continues to fascinate people today. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so we're going to unpack that. I'm going to take you through the timeline and we're going to talk about what happened. Um, some of the crazier, well, some of the theories, some of the crazier theories include um, maybe they were attacked and killed by a Yeti. Maybe <laughs> they were murdered by the local indigenous people who are the Mansi is their name. Interesting. Okay. Um, they perhaps could have been attacked or in some way affected by a ufo mm -hmm. classic uh, yes by escaped convicts <laughs> okay <laughs> by a government military test weapon gone awry by let me think now what else what else do we have in this i mean that's everything is there no, it's, it's no it's not everything actually there's there's weight there's more um uh being killed by kgb oh. for some for some reason Mm -hmm. um, infrasound, which is one of the more interesting ideas like a, that they like a weapon. No, like a naturally occurring infrasound. Oh, cool. Um, I hope it's that wind, uh, and an avalanche. So there, there's a there's a lot to unpack here. What's the official? Is there an official, officially there, licensed there, version? Yes, there is an official. Um, which I will get to a little bit later. Okay. So, so okay. So, um, it's 1959 and this is a group of, we'll call them, they're young adults. 
people kind of refer to them as kids. The the oldest, I think, was 20, 27. He was sort of an outlier. And then all of the other group, all the other members of the group, they were student, students at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in, um, make sure, I don't know if I can pronounce this right. I don't speak Russian, but it's uh, Sverdlovsk, which oh, I believe is. That sounds right. Okay, thank <laughs> sounds you. Sounds good. Thank you. So, um, so these were all really interesting young adults. They were, um, they were movers and shakers. And the, the head dude is a guy named Igor Dyatlov and Igor was 23. So the culture in the Soviet Union at the time, um, there was very much a kind of a, a Soviet youth, um, good communist citizen comrade element to the zeitgeist. And these kids were all very much a part of that. They um, they took their roles seriously. And one of the requirements or responsibilities or, or values of that time was that you were going to be a, a strong, capable comrade. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets, to their credit, um, really... I don't know indoctrinated is the right word, but indoctrinated people on um, on health, on strength, and and actually on on adventure. And they called them. So this group is they they are often called hikers or tourists. Those terms don't really they're not analogous to how we think of them now. Um, but basically, they were they were ski adventurers. Oh, and they're they on were, skis. They were on skis. skis. Yes. And I apologize to everybody if I left that out. So these were ski tourers. They were on a backcountry ski trip and they disappeared and all were found dead. So the, they were part of an outdoor club or group. There was more to this than just like a, like a casual school group. This was, there were rating systems. They, they would get certified um, depending on their level of expertise. And so most of the people in this group had their level two certification and they were going to tackle this major ski traverse or I, I think it was a traverse. They were going to do traverse and then train back um, through the Urals as part of getting their class three certification, which I believe was the highest at the time. So they were they were leveling up. What, basically. Uh, what, what the Urals are, they're, they're, pr- they're not, big right i don't know a whole lot about the urals what's the couple they're not thousand high. feet at, at most yeah yeah they're not high but they're there's a long chain and i, okay. I couldn't tell you exactly they're they're a f- several hundred miles maybe longer so like i think that the urals extend as far south as Sverdlovsk. Sverdlovsk, sorry and um they go way up to the north i don't know if they go all the way up to the arctic but their route from the city where they lived to where they were skiing was about 300 miles. Oh shit. Okay. So pretty long. Yeah. But the mountains that this all occurred in were, it was around 3,500, 4,000 feet. So, you know, we're not talking the Alps or the Sierra. So they weren't really dealing with altitude, but you know, this is a part of Siberia and it's, you know, it's Russia in the winter. So, okay. So, so the scene is that this, it's a group of experienced ski tourers, experienced outdoor kids, um, some of them have been to this area before. Igor Dyatlov is a very experienced at leading groups. He is somewhat, I believe he's universally admired. He's a natural leader. He's been to this particular area before. There are also other groups of ski tourers in this area. So it's, it's a pretty remote place, 
but there are other groups going out at that time in that area who are not unfamiliar with this. It's it's remote, it's rural, um, it's it's desolate, it's the freaking middle of winter, you know. Um, but it's not completely unknown territory to these folks. So now a wrinkle in all of this is that this is also the heart of military country hmm. and gulag country. And so for those who have forgotten their Russian history or their Soviet history, you know, this was it was before the Soviet Union broke up. It was uh, Russia had brought together this series of SSRs. Russia was the main one. And um, the the Soviet way, going back to the Stalin era, Stalin um, would imprison people that he didn't agree with or his political opponents through this system of prisons, these notoriously brutal prisons called gulags. So this is the heart of gulag country. Hmm. It's also the heart of um, military development country. Pretty remote area and um, a, a great place, sort of like Nevada for the U.S., like a great place to put secret military institutions were they allowed to be there like is it public land or i don't know what the russian system is i mean could you were they were they trespassing on on gulag or or military property or anything like that as far as you know they were not and i don't know exactly what the whether it was a collective land ownership i don't know but historically, there, there, it, was, it was okay for them to be there it was okay for them to be there historically it was the land of the Mansi who okay you know typical for indigenous people got you know kept getting squeezed and squeezed and you know less room but there was nothing illegal or improper about where they were. They had full permission from the authorities. Okay. So the authorities were fully, the authorities with the college were fully behind this. But the larger scene is that they're going into an area, like sort of imagine if you're like, you know, in between the Nevada state prison system and area 51, mm -hmm. you know, like you're going to the Toyabi mountains of Nevada, which, you know, seemingly in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere, but there's all this other weird stuff. And, and all of this becomes really relevant after we find, after they're discovered, as, as people start to imagine what's going on. So let me skip through the timeline. There's there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. Um, Justin's, one of Justin's roles is, is to keep me on track because, uh, you know, like you can, like if you go into the the Dyatlov Reddit, I mean, you, you're you going down a rabbit hole. There are tons of rabbit holes here. There's There's so much going on. So... So this is January of 1959. It's butt-ass cold. You know, it's Siberia. It's Russia. Um, but these kids are keen. So on January 23rd, they leave Sverdlovsk on a train and they head north. And they're going to go north through a series of smaller and smaller towns. They're going to take trains. They're going to take buses. Um, they will get sort of hassled by the cops in train stations. They're, they're just, they're, <laughs> there's just a whole series of like, kids today kind of things but these are they're very enthusiastic and they take their role as comrades seriously they they sing songs there's a there's a guy who has a mandolin and they make up songs and it's a very very wholesome there are 10 of them um one guy peels back because of health issues which i will get to shortly um, but there are 10 of them there are eight dudes and two women for the trip, the, the guys have promised that they're not going to smoke. The, the girls have have made them promise that they're not going to smoke. <laughs> and there's no alcohol. So it's a really, wow. really, it's a wholesome group. And they're um, they're spirited. Like, 
they they have a group journal they have all their own journals most of them have cameras black and white film 1959 black and white film and um at one point they do a um they make a group newsletter like a group newspaper um so this, this is like a great group of mm -hmm. kids and they're they're just all keen you know they've got their backpacks and their skis and they they hitch this series of rides and they go farther and farther north can um, i just say this sounds like the epic beginning to a really good like horror like nature horror film i mean it's, it's per so far it's perfect like i can see the kids with their like little communist hats on and like looking at the train and taking pictures and laughing and you're wondering how each one of them is going to get brutally murdered so this is setting up a great film really good it film. is i do have to say from a pure humanistic standpoint like i've gotten to know some of these personalities because i've been looking at this i'm no expert but i've been looking at this case for for many many years and there are a few characters who you know, I've I've got I feel like I've gotten to know some of their personalities. There are and just as, as a warning, as a content warning, I will describe some kind of gruesome things, some injuries later. Um, I mean, I've seen pictures of, of their bodies and, you know, like I just like these are people, you know, right. and they had they had mm -hmm. families who loved them. And I you know, this is one of the things about where true crime or or these mysteries take on this cultural life of their own i think it's important not to forget that they're people mm -hmm. and um you know and they were you know kind of us like i know that you um you're not an alpine tour or a ski mountaineer but i know like you know for many years i think you spent the holidays in a backcountry hut in yosemite yeah. oh, so yeah. like mm -hmm. you know these like we have a most of us i think have a lot in common these were adventurous mm -hmm. folks so i want to mention four key characters um there were as i said there were 10 there were some investigators but the, the four that you need to know i i've i've mentioned igor dialov mm -hmm. who was the leader and then the two women were zaneda komogorova whose nickname was zina well done thank on that you thank you and ludmila dubinina she's the other woman she was uh i don't know if the word is sassy she was outspoken like you, you knew what she was thinking. Um, I think for better or worse. Um, and then Zena was, um, she, at least four of the guys in the group had a crush on her or had sure. a relationship. So she was, she was a bit of a luminary and, um, Igor was found with her picture in his wallet or journal or something. And, and there, they may have been like, sweet on each other there was like a guy i think that she had been sweet with so this becomes a plot point later so i, I don't think that there was there was no active canoodling and the but there was definitely um as a backdrop there was uh maybe a little bit of intrigue and one of the things that they talked about a lot and xena kept bringing them back to this so they had a lot of time to talk they're on they're on buses they're in the back of horse-drawn sleighs they're on the train they're they're sleeping in one big room together um in, until they get to like the start of the trek is the nature of love like they talked a, a lot about love and the nature of, of love so you know they're i think uh dubanina she was 20 she was the youngest of the group um so like they're like they're kids they're like they're kids they're yeah kids. i mean i can imagine doing all this i mean it sounds familiar Exactly. Yeah. So then the last person is Yuri Yudin. And Yuri is the guy who turned back. 
So eventually they get to this point where other kinds of transport can take them no further and they're going to have to continue north on their skis under their own, own power. Um, Yuri had a series of health issues, including um, a kind of, uh, of, I think it was rheumatism. He had a lot of pain. And so a lot of what we know about their last days is a combination of, of Yuri and what he knew about the group and then the group journal. So Yuri turns back and he is, um, he's, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he lived a full life, you know, thanks to, um, this pain that he had where he felt like he couldn't go further and didn't want to hold the group up. So it's January 23rd, they leave, they, they get, they keep going North. And um, on January 28th, Yuri turns back and, um, and our group goes forward. And now there are nine of them. So they are following a series of rivers, not gonna try to pronounce them. They see Monsi symbols on the trees. They start to encounter more deep snow these are more, um, from the pictures I've seen, more kind of rolling hills. These are yeah. not super, super steep. Okay. Um, I They were really keen. I just think it was probably a lot of slogging. And yeah. one thing that I have not been able to discover is um, how they propelled themselves uphill with skis. So for those of you who aren't clear, if you were ski touring today, you put something on the bottom of your skis. It's, a, it's an artificial skin. It has a nap on it, like a hair or a fur. And as you slide your ski up the hill, it goes with the nap and it slides forward. And then when you put your weight on the ski, it goes against the nap and resists sliding backwards. Um, some cross country skis have like a, a, a fish scale pattern on them that enables them to do the same thing. I don't know what these guys were using. They talk at one point about breaking trail and the snow's so deep that they, they basically throw their, um, their backpack in front of them to pack down the snow and then they move forward. And then they take like 10 minutes at a turn and then the person in the back, like turns the back Jesus. back up. So wow. they, they had lots of times where skis were getting, uh, the bottoms were getting glommed with snow, which anybody who's ever broken trail or skinned up something, it's just a, it's a nightmare when skis sort of like glom on your skull. So I'm kind of curious, like what did they just, I don't know mm -hmm. how they did that. So, so they're moving forward. They're still excited. They're stoked. And, um, on, uh, January or February 1st, they come to a point where they decide that they're going to set up a, a shelter in the woods. Their goal for this trip is a mountain called Ortaton. And in the much have been made about the name of Ortaton, which is in uh, in the Monsi language, which yeah, basically sound means, Russian. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's not Russian. It's Monsi. And it alternatively means things like dead mountain or don't go there, um, <laughs> awesome. which from a horror standpoint, like, it you just know, gets better, man. It just gets better. The Monsi are like, you know, no, basically it's, it's, it's windy. It's butt ass cold. There's no animals up there. There's no vegetation up there. It's sort of like, just like, it basically means don't bother. Um, are, are the Monsi, are there, I've never heard of them before. Are they, um, like on reserve, I don't know anything about the system. Are they are they just living in like little rural kind of villages? Are they uh, are there a lot of them? What, yeah, like I don't know what their numbers are today. There there are not a lot of them. Um, 
somebody should fact check me on this. I want to say there's only like a thousand Monty speakers alive today. It's it's declined. I don't know that they're on formal reservations. I I don't. I can't really speak to that. Okay. Um, they're they are hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're woodsmen, woods people. So they they log and things. Um, they're they're not like uh, the Sami. Like they don't they're not reindeer herders. They're not nomadic. Okay. Um, but they are intimately connected to the natural world. Okay. So, um, I've seen some of the photos of their symbols on trees, you know, directing each other. Reminds me a little bit of like what you see from like the Basque sheep herders in Idaho, Hmm. you know, where they leave Mm -hmm. symbols on trees. Um, and by, I can just tell you right now, the Monsi did not murder them. (laughs) The Monsi people who were in that area are, uh, known as being super friendly. Okay. Super helpful. Um, they participated in the search. Oh, wow. uh, they, they've helped out, uh, Russian people who are, you know, or, or Soviets who were lost, like, like by every measure, apparently they're, they're just like good folks. Okay. So, um, like dead mountain, um, some of the media that has, um, come out over the years about Dyatlov, like the, the primary book, like if you want to read one book, it's by, uh, an American documentary filmmaker named Donnie Eicher and it's called dead mountain and he's probably done a better job of, yeah, it's, it's a no brainer, right? It's a great name, even if it's not entirely accurate. So they're heading to dead mountain to don't go there. What the hell are you thinking? (laughs) And they decide to, um, cash some stuff. And so they make a storage shelter, um, at the edge of some woods. And um, they leave a bunch of stuff, including the mandolin, which they were really sad about. And they are going to head up toward what is now known as Dyatlov Pass. I honestly don't understand why they did this. The weather was kind of going south. It was windy. It was cold. It was um, somewhere in the neighborhood of zero degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So it's freaking cold. And it's were they prepared be, for that? Like, do you, I mean, presumably they were, right? Like, is, this isn't radically cold for that zone. It's it's not. They were prepared, and you know, from our modern eyes, we're like, oh my god, they didn't have Gore-Tex. You right. Know, they they had wool. You yeah. know, they had waxed canvas. You know, they were they were bundled up. This was yeah. not their first ski yeah. touring rodeo. But still, like, I, I don't care how bundled up you are. Like, if you're breaking trail and it's zero degrees and it's blowing thirty miles an hour. You know, nope. the, the visibility is going to shit. You know, you're like one side of your face is turning r- numb and caked with rime. So um, so what they do, the Igor decides or the group decides that they're going to go um, toward, they're going to up this hill, which is pretty open. There's no vegetation on it. It's not very steep. And they're going to set up their tent um, in a pretty open space. As somebody who set up a lot of tents in the mountains, I, I don't I don't get it, frankly. But um, and there's been a lot of debate about why they would do that. They they decide to stop at, at three o'clock. So the sun is setting at five, but um, of course it's it's windy. I don't know how much snow is falling, but there's a lot of snow transport. And so from the, the pictures that exist, there are about 10 pictures that exist from that day. It it just doesn't look like a whole lot of fun. Um, which is why I say, I don't know why they actually left the, um, the shelter of the trees. They didn't 
really gain a lot of vertical. They didn't gain a lot of hmm. northward distance. Um, if it had been me, I would have stayed at that shelter and said, you know what? Let's call it good. It's noon. Let's call it good. We'll chill. We've got the mandolin. You know, let's let's just let's just hang out here. Are there bears? I mean, um, it's winter. Like it's why? I, I, like I is that why bears. you would leave the trees? Like I I agree. It makes no sense. No, no, it's snow just, loading on the trees. Like, is that an issue? Like, no, the lead, the trees are, are from what I can tell, they're, they, they're birches, they're cedars, like picture like something far north, you know, mm -hmm. where it's, it's a little bit like taiga, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's not super dense forest. Like it's not undense in the springtime, you know, there's a lot of deciduous trees, but, um, you know, like it looks a little bit like the Northeast in some ways, like in the Because I mean, you, so, you could build a snow cave in the trees just as well as you could on an open plant, like, right? Like if that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a lot easier because you wouldn't really have as much snow. Weird. Yeah. But you know, they, they did okay. what they did. You know, it's uh hindsight's 2020. So they move forward and it takes them a couple hours to set up the tent. The tent is, uh, is well used. Um, it has been repaired. They don't, I, I think it belong, belongs to Diatlov. And I think that they sewed a couple of tents together and it holds all of them. So it holds all nine of them. And at this point now, they have been tenting since um, January 28th when they got, if not sooner. So they're pretty well dialed. Like, you know how it is with a tent. Like you get like, the, the stove goes here, you know, our packs mm -hmm. go here, like you get a system down. So, so they go to settle in for the night and there's some things that are still will, will never be understood about exactly what happened. They did not set up the stove. It may be that they, um, and I, I don't recall if they had wood with them. They certainly had wood down, you know, a little bit lower in the trees. Um, but they didn't set up the stove. So I don't know why they have the stove if they have firewood and if they don't use it, it may have just been a pain in the ass. Um, it, it was a stove that Dyatlov and somebody else built. Um, it was not light. It had a, a, um, a, a, a chimney that sort of went out the front of the tent. Okay. Um, but they, they had, they had dinner. Uh, they, they had their packs all laid out. And I, I think. The packs were, I think, they were in the tent and they laid down on top of the packs. And then um, they, there were, uh, not a spoiler to say that we, we do find the tent later. Um, and we know this because of the things that were sort of in the tent. There was like slices of ham, there was some like cocoa. So whatever happens to them, it's not clear exactly when it happened. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to jump forward to them not returning because I think it's, it's important to know this, the sequence of events. Okay. So, so they are due back on, um, in this town called Vise, um, where they're going to telegraph, uh, that they're okay on February 12th. This was a long trip, you know, yeah. multi-weeks, um, 1959 nobody's got you know they're not carrying radios obviously no cell phones you know so there's this slush period you know mm -hmm. they've got some wiggle room they have these margins for not coming back so february 12th they don't come back nobody really thinks anything of it on february 
16th, their relatives are starting to worry because they were actually due back in Sverdlovsk on the 13th. On the 16th, Igor Dyatlov's sister, Rufina, is finally, she's just like, she's had enough. Yeah. And so she alerts the school administrator. She's like, dudes, um, they're not back yet. We expected to hear from them at least four days ago. What's going on? The school administrators basically shut them down. So huh. this is where paranoia, yeah. conspiracy of Soviet stuff starts to come into play because there's a lot of cover your ass elements totally. that seem to be going on on the part of officials. So in fact, at one point, one official telegrams back to like school administrators, I think it is, that the group is uh, has arrived in the state. <laughs> like, like there's just like, there's weird stuff that happens like this where you're like, what? Hey, Why I've seen do? I've seen Chernobyl. Like, I mean, that's kind of how that that whole thing went down, right? Like, it's just constantly everybody trying to pretend like nothing's going wrong. I, I, yeah, I get it. Right. Absolutely. If you've seen Chernobyl, I think you have a pretty good sense um, of what it was like in terms of information control, paranoia, officials covering their butts, doing what they thought the officials above them would want them to do. You just mistrust throughout the system, right? So that so they're not sure, you know, what's what's going on. So February sixteenth, Igor's sister's like, "Hey, rattles the cage." On February seventeenth, things get really interesting. All throughout the Urals, there are reports of lights and orbs flying in the sky. There's reports from hunters, from hikers, and even from military personnel. Now, granted, this is like the heart of, you know, the Soviet military industrial complex, but like military folks are going, wait, there's something weird going on here. And it's just, it's not just one or two, it's all over the place. And I think that's a good spot for us to pause. We'll be right back after the break. The key to happiness is pretty simple. Work less, play more, drink coffee. At Long Weekend, we designed our blends to be up for anything. Unfussy, always delicious, and roasted to order. Get your beans today at longweekend.coffee. Adventure Journal is a quarterly print magazine featuring inspiring stories, incredible photography, and fantastic design. If you love traveling, the outdoors, and adventure, you'll love AJ in print. Support independent media and subscribe at subscribetoaj.com. Welcome back. When we left, things were just starting to get weird. Quick summary, we have nine ski tours in the Ural Mountains in Russia in the dead of winter. It's ridiculously cold. It's windy because it's Russia in the middle of winter. The families want to know why the heck their loved ones aren't back. And the school administrators who back this whole thing are ghosting them. And, oh, yes, there are weird light orbs in the sky all over the Ural Mountains. What is going on here? So I need to know more about the orbs. I need to know, are we talking hot air balloon size orbs? Or are we talking stationary orbs? We're talking moving orbs. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not being a orb viewer myself i you know i'm not quite <laughs> sure how hard i'm guessing it's not easy to judge size as, yeah. as a uh 
as a regular consumer of UFO Reddit, you know, there's there's just all kinds of orbs. Are so. there? Are there? No, okay, I'm not. You're you're much more of a snow person than I am. Is this a thing? Do people do people report seeing weird? Like, does light do weird things in a blizzard where you might see an orb? Have the skies cleared at this point? Uh, you know, I, a good question. I don't know what the weather is at, on on uh, February seventeenth, um, nineteen fifty nine. There, um, I yeah, light does weird things in the winter, in the snow, in the mountains. Um, I've seen, uh, like where it's, I've been ski touring where it's just, it's completely socked in and it's snowing. Um, but the sun is kind of coming through that cloud yeah, cover, that's what you I'm know, thinking. and it, it's yeah. sort of like this glowing thing and it, but it's, it's very obviously the sun. Like and these not, people would have seen this all the time. So that wouldn't have been remarkable, right? This is obviously right. something no, really no, weird. No, it wouldn't have been remarkable. Yeah. And you know, people looked at what, like the state of the moon, you know, the phase of the moon, not an issue. It's just okay. not an issue. All right. And, you know, I've seen a few weird things in the sky and I, we, we're visual creatures and we do pattern recognition. So I think we know, yeah. like, if we haven't seen something before, right? Yeah. Like, I think these orbs, you know, I mean, it wasn't a Starlink chain of satellites. Like people were just like, what? And there were so many reports of these throughout the Urals. And as, as we'll see, this was not the first okay. or last time. There were okay. of orbs. Okay. Orbs. Orbs. Yes. Orbs. So um, it takes a while for the Soviet apparatus to spin up and take this thing seriously. Um, they actually start searching. They, they create a formal search on February 20th. So, you know, they were expected to be heard from on the 12th. We give them a few days in case weather's bad, but they were thought to be back in Sverdlovsk on the 13th. So this is a big lag, right? Like if you're a family, you're family member, you're probably Enraged. yeah, pretty worked up about this. So a formal search begins on the 20th. Um, they start flying people in. The head of the sports club um, gets flown in by helicopter to the nearest town for staging. They take a surveillance plane out, um, but the weather goes south again, and they land on also on February 20th. For reasons that are still not fully explained, the local municipality, Ivdel, the prosecutor's office there, opens a criminal investigation into the case of the missing hikers, which by my measure is weird. That's super weird. Like we've got nine kids, nine young adults missing. We have no idea what's happened to them, but we're at this point, we're probably feeling okay. They had food, they had shelter, you know, I had all this stuff. They, there's not their first time in the mountains. So why, why would you do that? Kind of weird. Hmm. Okay. So 22nd time is ticking away. A search party goes out and it's actually led by another student from UPI named Boris Slobstov. Boris was actually, he was a leader of another group of ski tourers that was out at the same time. In fact, they actually, they went out together, like on the train, huh. they sort of shared their, their route for a while, then they kind of split and then went different ways. And so Slob, Slobstov was expecting to reconnect with the Dyatlov party later, and he didn't. So he becomes a natural person for them to lean on to help do the searching. So search parties converge on the 23rd. They're searching by plane. They're searching by helicopter. On the 25th, 
they finally, a search helicopter finds ski tracks. So now we're like almost two weeks yeah. after these guys are, you know, are lost and missing. And they tell Slobstov and his party to go and to, to follow these tracks. So they follow the tracks. And finally, sure enough, on February 26th, they find the tent. The tent is set up middle of the slope, about 12 miles from Dead Mountain and um, in in snow and seemingly untouched. And there's nobody around. Nobody so in go. the tent. Nobody around the tent. Nobody okay. in the tent. Nobody around the tent. No bodies. Okay. Okay. So, so search. Because they're in the orbs. They're in the orbs. They, well, they've been taken to the orbs. That is a theory. Okay. That was a theory. Okay. February 27th, they, they start converging in the tent. And here's where things really go sideways because there's ostensibly a criminal investigation. We still don't know what happened, has happened to anybody in this group. Slobstov, somebody in his search party, slashes open the tent with their ice axe, trying to like, you know, so they don't have to undo like the front of the tent for some reason. Like people are weird. stepping, it's, yeah. it's weird. People are stepping all over yeah. the surroundings of the tent. Basically, if it's a crime scene, they have totally like screwed the pooch on the crime scene. So on February 27th, though, they see a set of nine footprints leaving the tent toward the valley. And they appear to be walking. And they 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 find these footprints because each of their feet compressed the snow so that the snow now is more compact and it's it's been preserved by the sense. I'm gonna compress a little bit here and 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 fast forward. We ultimately know that there were three tears in the tent. And later Forensically, they discovered that they were cut by a knife, and there are two that are cut at like eye level, at about the size of you know maybe like three inches, and a longer one where a body could come out. And forensically, they looked under a microscope, and they discovered and they discovered that these were not natural tears; they were caused by a knife, and they were they were slashed from the inside of the tent. Okay. Okay. Like, like viewing holes sounds like, like like viewing holes. Okay. Okay. So what happened, where did they go, and why in the world would they cut their tent in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night? So later in the day on February 27th, they find two bodies. Okay. And uh, they're both young men named Yuri. Uh, they're found at the base of a cedar tree, and it's about 1,300 yards, 1300 yards from the tent. Holy okay. shit. That's a pretty far that's a long way it's a it's a really long way yeah it's a really long way and um so they are uh they're found and they're found you know not not quite in, in embrace but they're they're kind of they're sort of cuddled up together and there's a fire there's the remains of a fire um at the base of it so it's a cedar tree and it's about mm, 25 feet tall and so the investigators uh eventually realized that um they they guesstimate hypothesized that the, the fire burned for about two hours roughly so they were able to get a fire going for for two hours and um they also there's there's 
twigs and and other um branches that they've not burned so it's not clear like did the fire go out what happened there are also branches broken going all the way up the tree and there is skin found along the bark of the tree so they surmise that one of these yuris climbed up the tree to break off branches maybe oh. slid down okay okay neither one of them is wearing shoes um their okay. boots turn out to be everybody's boots turn out to be in the tent okay oh like they ran out without their shoes on right okay. exactly is this tree on the way to something like is it like clearly if they were going to run toward a town you would go in that direction uh no this is pretty remote okay all right so it's it's weird um they're they're not wearing jackets um one of them has on a checkered shirt a pair of swim trunks under his long underwear um the only the right leg of his underwear remains and the other has been torn off not the leg, but the long underwear. Okay. Um, his feet, he's not wearing socks. Um, he's got bare feet. The other guy, the other Yuri is wearing an undershirt, a checkered shirt, um, long underwear, briefs and socks, but his clothes are brutally like shredded and a piece of them, pieces of them are apparently missing and they have burns on their body. And they also have injuries to their hands that appeared to be the kind of injuries like you might get if you were in a fist fight wow okay which has led some people to think that there was like a love triangle or love yeah. quadrangle and that people that these guys got into a fight over xena <laughs> okay okay so your Yudin is like he shuts that down he's like no that's just not the case later in the afternoon on the 27th they find the bodies of xena and of diatlov and they're about 300 yards from the tent. And they are in the middle of the slope and they uh, are facing uphill, uh, kind of on their bellies, not next to each other, but separated by a significant distance. And it appears that they may have been trying to make their way back to the tent. Okay. 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 So here's what we have. It's it's late February. Um, we uh, we have four bodies, and we have the tent, okay. and we have this mystery of what in the world was going on in the tent. And investigators are tele telegraphing back to authorities, I guess, in Sverdlovsk, the school. Like um, the tent is sliced. There's the stuff in the there's. There's uh, the shoes, there's, um, there's the ham, the sliced ham, there's a stove that hasn't been used, there's the journals, there's, um, there's the cocoa that maybe, they, it's just, it's not clear what's going on. And then there's the, the nine sets of footprints and the four bodies. So weird. So we need to jump ahead a little bit. March 5th, another body is found about 300 yards from the body of the bodies of Dyatlov and, um, and Zina. And, um, they, we have this mystery 
and we don't know what happened to the other groups. And the families, of course, are extremely upset. They're distraught. They're grieving. And they end up having funerals for the the five dead people that we, the five dead folks that we now um, have their bodies. All of them died of hypothermia. So that's a relatively huh. simple forensic thing. So it appears that something or someone has forced them from the tent in the middle of the night, underdressed, and they basically froze to death. But they have these kind of weird injuries. This is un unexplainable injuries otherwise. Unexplainable and they were climbing trees, maybe even to get a look at something. Perhaps. Hmm. We just don't know. Okay. And then there's really like the far from the tent. I mean, they, they were trying, it's like they're trying to get the hell away from the tent. Right. Like, let's say it's the middle of the night and, and you leave your tent in a blowing snowstorm. It's zero degrees and you don't have your shoes on. Yeah. Like, why would you be 1300 yards? Right. You know? Like if it's dark, are you like, are, are they trying to get to this other shelter tent? Like, it's just unclear. I mean, that's almost a mile, right? 1300 yards. Yeah. Yeah. It's over a kilometer. God, a that's crazy. In the snow. It's a long way. What? Yeah. No wonder they died of hypothermia. My God. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so they have the funeral and things just continue to be weird because the authorities don't want them to have the funeral. Uh, and, and then they don't want them to have the funeral publicly. And so they they kind of squat they squash like all these efforts on the families and like this is now a big deal in the Soviet press and in this town, in the Russian press and you know these there were a lot of people from the school and they had a lot of friends and so so they end up having the the funeral and they put like all their bodies in one grave and they have one marker, but the the authorities are just like weird like kind of bonkers weird about like this whole thing and continuing to spark a lack of trust because they just seem kind of dodgy. Okay. Okay. So there's still now four people remaining. Okay. We don't know what's happened to, uh, Lugia, Dubinina and, um, and three other folks. Okay. March 17th, more light orbs in the sky reported by meteorologists reported by soldiers. Members of a search team also report orbs. Really, really, weird. okay, okay, really weird. March. I'm on. I'm on team orb at this you're point. You're on team it's, orb. It's the orbs. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna like bring some closure to like the the timeline here pretty quick, and we're gonna get to the theories. Okay, um, March thirty first, more orbs. April third through sixth is when the. Um, the forensic investigation is going on the tent. Um, early, so early April and into May, they're they're trying to figure out like we they're discovering like okay they figured out like okay we now know that the slashes are from inside. On May third, a searcher, a Monsi searcher, finds a bunch of branches that have been cut um, by a knife, and they're kind of like poking out of the snow in a ravine near a different cedar tree. And this is a long way. This is like a mile from the tent now. And so they start probing with avalanche probes. And on May 4th, they find four bodies in a creek at the bottom of the ravine. And that's the rest of them, right? That's the rest of them. Okay. Okay. So the first body 
they do the um, they do the forensic, they do the autopsy, and the first body um, had died from uh, hypothermia. So you know that makes sense, right? So froze to death. The second body has five fractured ribs and severe hemorrhaging internally and no external, no source or external injuries. So there's not like bruising or anything and they died from the hemorrhaging. So body number two in the creek has some kind of traumatic injury that killed them pre-mortem. Okay. So these, these injuries are happened before they died. Yeah. Okay. The next body, same thing, fractured skull, massive hemorrhaging, injuries consistent with some kind of accident or trauma, but like no, no real external signs of it. And so then we get to Ludmilla who is face down in the water. Ludmilla died of massive thoracic damage. So chest, uh, lungs, ribs. Um, nine of her ribs are broken. She has massive internal hemorrhaging and, um, her, the heart, her ventricle is, is torn or severely damaged. And then, um, her tongue is missing. Okay. I've heard of that. Okay. So the, so the people, the, 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 other than the hypothermic one, the, these, these people were messed up. I mean, they, it sounds like they were crushed or uh, now I get where the infrasound idea comes from. But the other ones they find are just hypothermic. So it's like they, they somehow the ones that actually had some trauma are gathered together. They are. Yeah. Okay. So so it, it appears that the first five died probably relatively quickly and um, died from uh, exposure. These four folks lived longer. They got a long way from the tent. Um, now, they're not, keep in mind, they're not on skis and they don't have shoes. Okay. And the other thing, this is one of the things that's sort of like you can rabbit hole on, but like all of their clothing is, uh, is like, is patchwork. So, um, like, like they just grabbed whatever they could or something like they grabbed whatever they could from other people. So I, I don't remember all the details. And again, it, you can really get, you can get in the weeds on this, but Ludmilla, I want to say is wearing, you know, like somebody else's socks or half of their underwear. You know, so so like it's it's as if they have taken partial clothing off of bodies to try to stay warm. Okay, but not like taking you know their long sleeve shirt and their long underwear and pulling that on, but like taking like the calf from their long underwear pants. So bizarre. I mean, I guess that sounds like panic, but I don't know. That's cr I don't know. It's just it's weird. It's weird. All right, so let's let's step, take a step back and, and look at, at kind of the big view here, and then we'll, we'll dive into these theories. Okay, so the evidence that we have, even though it was, it's now 60-some years old, it was not as well documented as it could have been because of all these search parties stepping on these things and because of Soviet paranoia. Um, so we, we don't know exactly what is what. We do know a few things. We do know that the tent was set up in the snow and that the front of the tent was um, unviolated. It was still closed. It closed with these sort of like 
kind of collapsed, almost like wooden buttons in a way, like wooden toggle buttons. That was still intact. The group from inside the tent cut what appear to be two eye holes. And then they all apparently left the tent through this slash in the middle of the night and then walked seemingly in single file, not in a hurry, off into the snow somewhere. So like what, so what scenario explains that? Like, what, what do you think? Like, it's weird, right? Well, I mean, I've heard though, I've heard that the, the, you know, theories are usually, the theories generally coalesce around some sort of avalanche, but that doesn't make any sense given what you just described. And the, 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 it, it sounds all to me like something f scared the hell out of them and they could see it or they wanted to see it and just left that. I mean, I, not leaving, not in a hurry is weird, but it's this just, it's almost sounds like they thought something was coming for them and they just had to flee the tent as fast as they could. Exactly. Because, you know, they don't have the stove going, but, and I, and I don't know if this was the sort of group where they left food out when they went to bed. I mean, I've never been in a group of campers that does that. Um, so maybe they were awake, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they hadn't gone to bed. Um, there was the two guys from the two Yuri's from the cedar tree were a little bit better dressed than the others. There's some evidence that they maybe gone out to take a leak. So I don't know if there was urine in the snow or so there's this a supposition that oh. they, they'd gone out to pee before huh. settling into bed and maybe were better dressed and then something happened. They clearly left the tent and they left the tent unprepared. So they must have been terrified. Yeah. Absolutely There's... terrified because I mean, they didn't take the time to put their boots on. But then how do you explain this set of nine footprints apparently stepping in each other's tracks, which you know kind of makes sense in the snow. You're packing the snow down, but like they're not running. Like if they're in a panic, you would you'd be, think you'd be running be like, and falling and stuff. And they'd yeah. be all over the place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay, so earlier you asked me if there was a definitive. Yeah. So yes, in 2019, so this has remained a source of fascination worldwide and also in Russia. And there's been a lot of pressure to you know open up records and reinvestigate. So in 2019, there was a final investigation that came to the conclusion that it was an avalanche. And in 2021, a pair of very highly renowned Swiss snow experts did modeling and did a study and said that an avalanche, it technically could have been an avalanche. But here's the deal. This is not very steep terrain. So the actual tent was set up on, again, it, it's hard to get, it's always hard to get like a true, like really accurate reading when, it, when there's snow and snow built up, but it was around 18 degrees. And a slope of 18 degrees is almost never going to avalanche. Like, I mean, I technically, it, it probably could under some circumstances, but it would be exceptionally rare. And then the slope above them, it, it kind of steepens a little bit above them. And this is bare. There's no vegetation. Okay. So it's like this windswept kind of dome, mm -hmm. basically. So above them, it's a little bit steeper and, and it could have avalanched. And, um, but not a lot steeper. And so... A lot of folks are like, okay, it's an avalanche because like, what, 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 what could it have been? You know, like what, what, so the theories, like theories are easily like rejected. Like it wasn't a Yeti, 
right? <laughs> there, there was no other tracks. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. that stems from like this, this little sort of group newspaper that they did. They talked about spotting a Yeti. And so people like took them literally that they spotted. It was, it was a joke, right? Um, it was not uh, escaped convicts from one of the gulags. Uh, probably not KGB. <laughs> they probably didn't know. stumble on some military experiment because you have this group that of five that's died from hypothermia. So like if it was some other sort of human thing, then like, why would KGB they... would just shoot them like who? And then, and why would like, it'd be easy to hide it. You just shoot them and say, I don't know. They, they got lost next. Like there's no reason for the KGB to stage something weird like that. Right. There's, so there's a lot of conspiracies about staging that make absolutely no sense. So what whatsoever. So, I mean, I think that we have to look at the possibility of something natural and the natural, the most likely natural thing seems to be yeah. an avalanche but yeah. people who are close to this not the authorities but people who've kind of made it their life's work to study these things just immediately call bs on that they're like it's it's not an avalanche it was it's not steep enough to an avalanche and the photos which you can look at online of the tent that they came upon a couple of years later there's there's absolutely no evidence of avalanche debris so wild. wild. So it's wild. So a couple of days ago, I talked to Doug Chabot. Doug is the head of the um, Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. Um, we actually profiled Doug um, in Adventure Journal in print a few issues ago because he has, um, you'll have to read the story, but he has a strong connection to Afghanistan and sort of has become the is, is is he sort of joked the Taliban's avalanche forecaster, but he's sort mm -hmm. of like the guy from the West who has tried to help them institute usable snow safety protocols over there. So I called Doug because Doug was quoted in, in a New York Times piece when the Swiss research, researchers a couple of years ago said uh, it, you know, it theoretically could have been um, an avalanche. So I called up Doug and Doug was like, hard no. Not an avalanche. Really? Right off the bat? Right off the bat. And he knew the story pretty well? He knew the story pretty well. Okay. Like, he's not a, um, he's not a Dyatlov aficionado, okay. but he's a snow expert. In fact, I talked to him when he was in Bend, Oregon at the, uh, at the snow, there's a snow safety research college that they have every couple of years where they all get together and share papers. And he was in the middle of that. So he knows snow like any, like, like nobody knows snow. And, um, his theory is he looks at the wind and he thinks that the snow built up and collapsed part of the tent <laughs> and that that freaked them out and that they went running out. Oh, I don't buy it. Um, and, but he's, he's like, you know, it, it, it didn't slide. Like I looked at the photos and New York times is saying this is avalanche debris and, and national geographic, this story. And they're saying avalanche, this is debris. And I'm looking at the photos of the snow in the tent. I'm like, that's not avalanche degree debris. It's just, it's not. Well, how would they get crushed by snow building up and collapsing the tent? I mean, that would take an enormous amount of snow to do that. Well, I asked him about, so I asked Doug about the injuries and he sort of shrugged. He's like, yeah, you know, like you can find explanations for these other things. I think the important thing is to look at like the big inciting huh. event. Huh. And that's where for me, it doesn't, his idea, his theory doesn't hold water because like, well, how would these people get, you know, like how would their heart, parts of their heart be sort of torn and all well, these and other things? Why would they separate like that? I mean, I guess if two, if a few of them went off for help and didn't come back and the other ones didn't know which direction they went, but if they, 
Why would they have been crushed so far from the? Okay. Seemed, okay. I, that's freaking me out. Because if they're if you find people that are crushed and died from those injuries a long way from the tent, then that didn't happen where they were camped. No, right? you could. They could not have traveled, and an avalanche did not sweep them into the creek bed. Now, creek beds and ravines are are what um, uh, sort of mountain people, snow snow experts call terrain traps. Sure. Sure. Right. And it's because like if if you were like skiing along the side of a of a creek and the snow there collapsed on the bank which it could it, it could sweep you into the water upside down so that theoretically that could happen but there i don't think there were a lot of steeps around the creek bed so now you know doug has spent a lifetime looking at this stuff and you know i i take what he says uh seriously um and you know i talked to him about the injuries a little bit and he's spent a lot of time up on denali and around denali pass and you know, he has dug a lot of bodies out. And so, you know, again, kind of content warning, he was telling me about something that is, is rather disturbing. He, he dug out a couple of folks who had pitched their tent in a crevasse on Denali pass and the snow bridge the snow collapsed part of the tent. And they, I don't know that they cut their way out, but they got out of the tent and then they couldn't get out of the crevasse. And this one guy had clawed a, an alcove into the ice of the crevasse and he's doug said it looked like he was sort of half in and out it was like it was almost like he was in like this almost like egg-shaped thing that he carved out and he had yeah again this speaks to his desperation he had carved his like his fingers down at the snow to the point where the finger was gone down to the second knuckle the bones were gone so doug has seen people in these absolutely desperate situations where they've ended up with really weird, you know, physical impacts on their body because they were trying to survive. And so I think that he looks at the situation and he's like, well, okay, you know, hands contused or, you know, whatever. Now they probably didn't get to a fist fight, but you know, yeah, who knows, who knows what it was where I disagree on that is this idea that they, that they cut these holes it, it's, we're pretty sure it's the middle of the night, right? Like it's the middle, it's, it's dark. And maybe they've got flash nights inside. We know that the stove wasn't working or they didn't have it put together. So why, why would you affect the, why would you hurt the integrity of your tent, your shelter in the middle of winter, super cold, blowing snow to look at something in the middle of the night? Like what would you be looking at? Really good point. Why would, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so avalanche, uh, possible snow collapsing the tent, and then um, the other theory that that I think is really interesting is Donnie Eichers, who wrote the book Dead Mountain, and so his theory is this thing called infrasound, which is a very rare meteorological thing, and the the thumbnail on this is that um, it takes a very specific topographical environment to create this sound. It's not a sound you can hear. It's infrasound. So it's, would that be higher or lower? Infra? Higher? I don't know. You can't hear it. (laughs) I don't know. But, sorry science guys, I can't remember. But it creates uh, fright, paranoia, terror. Like this sound has been known and different, Creepy groups like 
probably CIA, KGB, web people, people have experimented with military record with military sure. military weapons using sound. In fact, like the whole Havana syndrome thing that's going on with yeah. people and their brain damage. I mean, they sure. they're sort of looking at sound waves for this. So um, I I, uh, I I don't know if anything exists, but we know that sound can have these like weird effects on folks and um, and cause them to do really strange things. So Iker's theory is that they didn't hear this thing. They basically just freaked out. What do you think? And 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 they cut their way out of the tent. Cut, cut, their, their, way the cut tent, their way out of the tent. And somehow pummeled their friends to death. Well, but but the thing is, like those injuries happened later. Those injuries, so like three of those injuries, that that was the cause of death. These massive yeah injuries. So and an avalanche didn't sweep them into the ravine. I I yeah I don't know maybe they'd survive for a number of days or whatever, and they were weakened and, you know, they fell into the ravine, but they weren't like, like up against boulders or rocks. So the gal, you know, who had the most severe injuries, you know, she was face down in a Creek in the water, which may explain, you know, why her tongue was missing or animals ate it. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. That, you know, it could, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why, and some of their eyes were missing. And again, like, you know, there could have been some predation going on. Well, so. you know, I mean, you've presented me with lots of uh, odd UFO facts over the years, and I usually dismiss them. I'm very much a, uh, there's always a natural explanation for things. And this doesn't add up. I mean, this really doesn't. Like, uh, nothing else you've ever said to me makes me think, yeah, aliens are visiting us. And I'm not saying this was aliens. I still don't think aliens have been here. But... I want to know what those orbs are all about. And I want to know if the Russians had some sort of, it makes more sense to me that there was actually some sort of sound based like device that they were testing out that, that at a certain point th that becomes the simpler explanation than trying to piece together all these like actual natural occurrences that could have caused these things to happen. I mean, if they, I, I, this whole time, by the way, I mean, I've heard of this before. I assumed all the bodies were either in the tent or right next to it. I had no idea they were so far away from the tent. I also didn't realize that they had died at different times. So this to me smacks of something very odd going on that scared the living shit out of these kids. And potentially, I, I, mean, I guess there's a natural, there, I guess if you fell into a creek, you could smash your ribs and dive internal. Bleed. I mean, I don't know how deep this creek is. I guess that kind of makes some sense. It's not, it's not deep. It's not deep. But, it's a I few mean, inches. I, it's a creek. It's a. It's it's just a creek, and that's you know, so, the weirdest part. To so me. you've or got the guys climbing. Like you wouldn't climb to get branches down. That, that doesn't make. But any he sense. did. There were branches broken off of high. So was well, he, maybe he climbed to get a good view. That's what that sounds like to me. Or maybe, well, in the middle of night in the snow. I don't know. Or maybe to get away from something. And you know the the injuries. Uh, you know, massive skull fracture. Yeah, right? that's bizarre. nine nine ribs like. They said it was the the equivalent of like an auto accident. Do we know there's no like is there no history of the Monsi attacking? I mean, if they're hunters, no. like the the single like the single tracks or something like that sounds very very huntery. Yeah, but those were leaving the tent and going leaving downhill. Leaving the tent. Okay, so we got to unpack the UFO thing because yeah. you can laugh. I I, I'm, <laughs> I I'm, knew it was coming. <laughs> I don't, I, honestly, I, I don't know. And, you know, I, I get chills when I'm sort of even relating this. Like, 
I, all that I've studied this, like I still, I don't know, but I'm kind of on team UFO. Yeah. So let me tell you kind of why I'm on team UFO. First off, a couple of years ago, I would have been like, yeah, what? No, I'm a rationalist, right? But the last couple of years, obviously, we've had these revelations coming out from the Navy. We've seen these videos. We've had testimony before Congress. We've had our military come out and say, there is weird stuff in the sky. It shows up on our sensors. It is material. And we don't know what it is. And that's a whole other discussion. But like of what that could be. But like people who know say, we don't have this technology China doesn't have this technology. Russians don't have this technology. And I think that when you combine that with some of the things that are happening at the forefront of physics, where people are saying, you know what, the, the universe might not even exist without human observation. Like there's all kinds of crazy stuff that's happening at the forefronts of quantum physics, which I can barely begin to understand, but that we don't even really know the nature of, of reality. So a lot of whole lot of people who are much smarter than I am are saying there's really weird stuff going on out there. And then in terms of like UFO encounters and abduction things and you know these tales of orbs, there are tens of thousands of well-documented cases that if, if, if people were faking this stuff, and certainly people are faking and hoaxing probably a significant number of these, but they're not faking all of these things. Like there are these things that you just can't explain. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you one last thing here as we're coming to a close. So after the funerals, um, you know, the, the friends and relatives, the people who love them were like, they were trying to figure out like what in the world was going on. So they, one of the, one of the kids fathers was talking to other hikers who were out there and, um, just trying to explain. So this guy, the father of a guy named, his name was Georgie. So Georgie's dad talked to some of these other groups. Remember I was telling you like Slobstov and there were mm -hmm. these other groups of ski tours out there. Mm -hmm. He talked to some of these folks and these hikers told him that on February 1st, the night that all of this went down, there were two, there were two separate hiking groups out there that witnessed weird stuff in the sky. And what this guy said, I'm, I'm reading for Ike from Iker's book. So the Georgie's dad said, quote, they saw a strange phenomenon in the evening to the north from their locations, the extremely bright light. The light was so bright that even those hikers were prepared, who were preparing to sleep in tents went out to look at it. For some time, the, saw, the sound of strong thunder came from afar. Well, so this is also, this is 59, right? Yeah. I mean, this is like right in the teeth of military aviation experimentation. They're near military installations. I mean, I, I could see something like that being a, a, a potential thing. You know, there's some fancy Russian plane that was super loud flying around. I mean, that kind of makes some sense to me, isn't that? I mean, that's kind of when all this is happening in the south, in the southwest, in the U.S. too. It is. It is, and. For sure, the possibility that it, I mean, given all the military stuff that's, you know, going on in that area, that's a possibility. Um, we we don't know, we'll never know for sure, but all of the records and all of the witnesses and all the investigations says that there was nothing going on militarily at that time. So, 
So I don't know, you know, but the idea that there's something bright in the sky and weird that all of a sudden is lighting up your tent in the middle of night. Like you've I mean, been sleeping in your truck or whatever, that, your tent, yeah. like somebody like headlights hit your truck in the middle of night, in the middle of nowhere. You're kind of like, that freaks you out. For sure. I mean, the, the, they, the, the, the infrasound makes a lot of sense. I've never heard that, that that's a natural, that that could be a natural phenomenon. That That's pretty interesting. I mean, that, that, that answers a lot of questions. It, it really is. It really comes down to the like pretty traumatic injuries that just doesn't really add up. I mean, that like. Even if it is a UFO, I mean that doesn't really explain that either. Like they just it so, doesn't explain. No, you, it doesn't. It does not explain it, it. If you had a light, like a crazy bright light outside in the middle of nowhere, in the sky, that explains why they might slice open the tent and take a look. I think I it's get, still. I, I still don't understand why you'd cut your tent open. That's the thing that makes no sense. See, these are the things that don't drive. Why would you cut your tent open instead of? taking time to open the front of the tent because never. it's your only shelter. I would never do that. Why would you leave your tent in the middle of the night, super ass cold, you know, in the snow and not put your jacket on, not put your boots on. And then why would you leave in a single file line that clearly you're not running and you're not panicked at that point? Like it shows no evidence a panic. So, so the avalanche idea would be, or the, or the, or the snow, maybe not an avalanche necessarily, but a, a buildup of snow behind the tent falls on the tent, crushes them. There's some panic. Some of them go out one way. Others maybe got crushed by the snow, I guess. And then were like rolled or pushed by the wind somehow into this terrain trap. And they died over there or they died already. And then they just got rolled into that. I mean, now I'm starting to come back around to uh, okay, but causes. okay. So, so keep in mind that the the slope is not steep at all. Yeah. So the idea of an, an and it it gets less steep toward the creek. You know, I mean, it rolls a little bit into the creek, but as you're coming down, you know, it, it's pretty mild terrain. So it's not as if like it's a mesa and then it drops off and you could have had a buildup of snow. That's, that's just not the topography of the land. There is nothing, there's no like fallen tree. There's no like, no boulders that appear to have been moved. Right. Pushed around. Pushed mm-hmm. around. Um, I mean, some people have speculated, they, they were taken by UFO and dropped from great height. But, I, I mean, this is a good, I like, I, I just don't know how to explain it. And nobody really, I mean, there are all kinds of explanations, but I think, Maybe it was all of those things. Maybe a UFO came and triggered an avalanche. And while that was happening, that created the perfect situation for the infrasound to develop. All of these things could have happened. And? And the KGB killed some people too. Yeah, but the KGB was wrestled to the ground by the Yeti. Yes. And it would help, which is, explains the, the, the abrasions on the hand. Yes. And the Yeti was called in by the Monsi people. And the way the Yeti actually weighs the equivalent of nine people. So it looks like (laughs) Yeti sat on somebody. Yes. All right. That is the Dyatlov Pass mystery. Uh, I'm not satisfied. I don't know too many people are satisfied. I think we are going to be chewing on this for a long time. And I I just uh, in closing, I'm I'm just sorry that people who um, who were so young yeah. And seemed to have so much, did have so much going for them. And we're so excited about the natural world um, that they had this tragedy uh, that happened to them. Thank you guys. 
This is the Adventure Journal Podcast. As you know, uh, we'd appreciate it. You know, follows, likes, all that other sort of good stuff. Um, you can also, and I hope you will, subscribe to our beautiful printed quarterly. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. And you can do all of that at adventurejournal-com. No, nope. uh, adventure-journal.com. Please also, uh, what do you think? I mean, if you're watching this on YouTube, let's hear your thoughts. I'm, I, I, it's probably just as good as anybody. <laughs> your guess is as good as anybody else's at this point. So Yeah, or leave us a voicemail. I, I would love to, to see the conversation because there are a lot of people that absolutely love the snow knows the know the snow they are experts um you can any search that uh for Dyatlov pass is going to bring you to a site that is set up kind of a a fan site that has tremendous documentation that has translations of all the journals pictures of the journals all the photos the autopsy stuff like anything that you would ever want to know about Dyatlov is there and you can form your own opinions but yeah let us know or if you've seen some orbs let us know that too yes all right Thank you. Take care. Appreciate you listening. Bye.